Hello, my name is Hassan Sorrells, and this is the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast, episode number 37. With our book today, With the Old Breed, at Peleliu and Okinawa, by the late, great E.B. Sledge. And I read directly from With the Old Breed by E.B. Sledge. Uh, Today we are reading from the version, uh, the most recent version, um, published by Ballantine Books out of New York in 2010. This is the Presidio Press trade paperback edition of With the Old Breed. Uh, And we'll talk a lot about this book today and about its influence, but... Let me read directly from the preface by E.B. Sledge. This book is an account of my World War II experiences in training and in combat with Company K, 3D Battalion, 5th Marine Regiment, 1st Marine Division, during the Peleliu and Okinawa campaigns. It is not a history, and it is not my story alone. I have attempted, rather, to be a spokesman for my comrades who were swept with me into the abyss of war. I hope they will approve of my efforts. I began writing this account immediately after Peleliu while we were in rest camp on Pa Vuvu Island. I outlined the entire story with detailed notes as soon as I returned to civilian life and I have written down certain episodes during the years since then. Mentally, I have gone over and over the details of these events, but I haven't been able to draw them all together and write them down until now. I have done extensive research with published and unpublished histories and documents pertaining to my division's role in the Peleliu and Okinawa campaigns. I have been amazed at the vast difference in the perception of events recounted in these narratives as contrasted to my experience on the front line. My Pacific War experiences have haunted me, and it has been a burden to retain this story. But time heals, and the nightmares no longer wake me in a cold sweat with a pounding heart and racing pulse. Now I can write this story, painful though it is to do so. In writing it, I'm fulfilling an obligation I have long felt to my comrades in the 1st Marine Division, all of whom suffered so much for our country. None came out unscathed. Many gave their lives, many their health, and some, some their sanity. All who survived will long remember the horror they would rather forget. But they suffered, and they did their duty. So a sheltered homeland can enjoy the peace that was purchased at such a high cost. We owe those Marines a profound debt of gratitude. Let me quote from the introduction to another war memoir written by another veteran of another war. This introduction was penned by a man named Ward Just that I'm about to read. He was an American war correspondent and the author of 19 novels and numerous short stories. He said in his introduction to this other war memoir that we will be reading this month on the podcast as well, he said, and I quote, and it applies to with the old breed, and I quote, the soldier is rarely articulate on these matters, and the matters he was speaking of were matters of war management at the officer's level and above, as anyone who has read a battle plan or an article in one of the military magazines can attest. All soldiers know that the field of battle is not symmetrical. 
It exists in its own lawless reality, unique even as it reverberates. Verdun may have its echo in Dien Bien Phu and Dien Bien Phu in Khe San, but these are only echoes, not the thing itself. Novels and histories are wonderful and indispensable, but they are not the thing itself. This book is the thing itself. Close quote. From the Eugene B. Sledge Collection at the Auburn University Digital Library, you can go check this out online, I want to read to you a little bit about E.B. Sledge and his life before he became a Marine that led to his literary life after going through his Marine experiences at Peleliu and Okinawa. And I quote from the Auburn University Digital Library, Eugene B. Sledge Collection. Eugene Bondurant Sledge was born on November 4, 1923 in Mobile, Alabama. He graduated from Murphy High School in Mobile in May 1942 and entered Marion Military Institute, MMI, in Marion, Alabama that fall. Sledge enlisted in the U.S. Marine Corps in December 1942 at MMI and was eventually assigned to Company K, 3rd Battalion, 5th Regiment, 1st Marine Division, K-3-5. He served in the Pacific Theater, where he saw action at Peleliu and Okinawa. After the war, Sledge attended Alabama Polytechnic Institute, now Auburn University, where he received a Bachelor of Science degree in the summer of 1949. He returned to Auburn in 1953, where he worked as a research assistant until 1955. That same year, he graduated from API with a Master of Science degree in Botany. From 1956 to 1960, he attended the University of Florida and worked as a research assistant. He received his doctorate in biology from the University of Florida in 1960. He was employed by the Division of Plant Industries for the Florida State Department of Agriculture from 1959 to 1962. In the summer of 1962, Dr. Sledge was appointed Assistant Professor of Biology at Alabama College, now the University of Montevallo. In 1970, he became a professor in the Department of Biology at the University of Montevallo, a position he held until his retirement in 1990. In 1981, almost 40 years at the end, after the end of World War II, Dr. Sledge published an account of his experiences during the Second World War in a book entitled With the Old Breed at Peleliu and Okinawa. With the Old Breed is now widely recognized as a classic war memoir. And today on the podcast, we will be reading long selections from this classic war memoir that is rightly recognized as the thing itself. Because literature, most notably war memoirs, written by the soldiers who lived and died and breathed war itself, crosses the gap for leaders between the experience of the thing and the thing itself. Back to With the Old Breed by E.B. Sledge. Um, we're going to start out with chapter one. We're going to read about how you make a Marine because there's something here that leaders need to understand um, that they often miss. Interestingly enough, just had a conversation with somebody about this today. Um, well, the value, about the value of training. Leaders often miss this, particularly in organizational cultures that are focused on turning people into widgets. Uh, whether that's white-collar widgets or blue-collar widgets, uh, training is often undervalued. And as a person who runs a training and development company, I believe in training. And we'll talk a little bit about this after our selection. So from Chapter 1, Making of a Marine, once again from With the Old Breed by E.B. Sledge, Corporal Doherty wasn't a large man by any standard. He stood about 5 feet 10 inches, probably weighed around 160 pounds, and was muscular with a protruding chest and a flat stomach. He had thin lips, a ruddy complexion, and was probably as Irish as his name. From his accent, I judged him to be a New Englander, maybe from Boston. 
His eyes were the coldest, meanest green I'd ever seen. He glared at us like a wolf whose first and foremost desire was to tear us from limb to limb. He gave me the impression that the only reason he didn't do so was that the Marine Corps wanted to use us for cannon fodder to absorb Japanese bullets and shrapnel so genuine Marines could be spared to capture Japanese positions. That Corporal Doherty was tough and hard as nails none of us ever doubted. Most Marines recall how loudly their DIs, uh, that's drill instructors, yelled at them, but Doherty, Doherty didn't yell very loudly. Instead, he shouted in an icy, menacing manner that sent cold chills through us. We believed that if he didn't scare us to death, the Japanese couldn't kill us. He was always immaculate, and his uniform fitted him as if the finest tailor had made it for him. His posture was erect, and his bearing reflected military precision. The public pictures a D.I. wearing sergeant stripes. Doherty commanded our respect and put such a fear into us that he couldn't have been more effective if he had had the six stripes of a first sergeant instead of the two of a corporal. One fact emerged immediately with stark clarity. This man would be the master of our fates in weeks to come. Doherty dr rarely drilled us on the main parade ground, but marched or double-timed us to an area near the beach of San Diego Bay. There, the deep, soft sand made walking exhausting just what he wanted. For hours on end, for days on end, we drilled back and forth across the soft sand. My legs ached terribly for the first few days, as did those of everyone else in the platoon. I found that when I concentrated on a fold of the collar or cap of the man in front of me or tried to count the ships in the bay, my muscles didn't ache as badly. To drop out of the ranks because of tired legs was unthinkable. The standard remedy for such shirking was to double time in place to get the legs in shape before being humiliated and berated in front of the whole platoon by the D.I. I preferred the pain to the remedy. Before heading back to the hut area at the end of each drill session, Doherty would halt us, ask a man for his rifle, and tell us he would demonstrate the proper technique for holding the rifle while creeping and crawling. First, though, he would place the butt of the rifle on the sand, release the weapon, and let it drop, saying that anyone who did that would have a miserable day of it. With so many men in, in the platoon, it was uncanny how often he asked to use my rifle in this demonstration. Then after demonstrating how to cradle the rifle, he ordered us to creep and crawl. Naturally, the men in front kicked sand onto the rifle of the one behind him. And this, with this and several other techniques, the DI made it necessary for us to clean our rifles several times each day. But we learned quickly and well an old Marine Corps truism. The rifle is a Marine's best friend. We always treated it as just that. During the first few days, Doherty asked one of the recruits a question about his rifle, and answering, the hapless recruit referred to his rifle as, quote-unquote, my gun. The D.I. muttered some instructions to him, and the recruit blushed. He began trotting up and down in front of the huts, holding his rifle in one hand and his penis in the other, chanting, this is my rifle, as he held up his M1, and this is my gun, as he moved his other arm. This is for Japs, he again held aloft his M1, and this is for fun, he held up his other arm. Needless to say, none of us ever again used the word gun, unless referring to a shotgun, mortar, artillery piece, or naval gun. By the way, pause for just a moment here. Uh, you can see a live demonstration of what the drill sergeant did to the recruit there in the movie Full Metal Jacket, directed by Stanley Kubrick. Back to the book. A typical day in boot camp began with Reveille at 400 hours. We tumbled out of our sacks in the chilly dark and hurried through shaves, dressing, and chow. The grueling day ended with taps at 2200, that's 8 o'clock at night. At any time between taps and revelry, however, the DI might break us out for rifle inspection, close order drill, or for a run around the parade ground or over the sand by the bay. This seemingly cruel and senseless harassment stood me good in good stead later when I found that war allowed sleep to no man particularly the infantrymen. Combat guaranteed the sleep of the permanent type only. We moved to two or three different hut areas during the first few weeks, each time on a moment's notice. The order was platoon 94 fall out on the double with rifles, full individual equipment, and sea bags with all gear properly stowed and prepared to move out in 10 minutes. A mad scramble would follow as men gathered and packed their equipment. Each man had one or two close buddies who pitched in to help uh, each other donned packs and hoist heavy sea bags onto sagging shoulders. Several men from each hut would stay behind to clean up the huts and the surrounding area as the other men of the platoon struggled under the heavy loads to the new hut area. 
when we, well, one of the hot areas we were in was across a high fence from an aircraft factory where big, where big B-24 Liberator bombers were made. There was an airstrip too, and the big four engine planes came and went low over the tops of the huts. Once one belly landed going through the fence near our huts. No one was hurt, but several of us ran down to see the crash. When we got back to our area, Corporal Doherty delivered one of the finest orations on the subject of recruits never leaving their assigned area without the permission of their DI. We were all impressed, particularly with the tremendous number of push-ups and other exercises we performed instead of going to noon chow. And lastly, each morning after roll call, we ran in the foggy darkness to a large asphalt parade ground for rifle calisthenics. Atop a wooden platform, a muscular physical training instructor led several platoons in, long, in a long series of tiring exercises. A public address system played a scratchy recording of 3 o'clock in the morning. We were supposed to keep in time with the music. The monotony was broken only by frequent whispered curses and insults directed at our enthusiastic instructor, and by the too frequent appearance of various DIs who stalked the extended ranks, making sure all hands exercised vigorously. Not only did the exercises harden our bodies, but our hearing became super keen from listening for the DIs as we skipped a beat or two for a moment of rest in the inky darkness. At the time, we didn't realize or appreciate the fact that the discipline we were learning in responding to orders under stress often would mean the difference later in combat between success or failure, even living or dying. The ear training also proved to be an unscheduled dividend when Japanese infiltrators slipped around in the night. So in reading that section, uh, those of us who have never served in a war might recoil, and that is just the beginning. Hard training has always been an aspect of the military experience. As a matter of fact, one of the things that I often tell folks being in training and development in that space, I, I tell folks often that, uh, that uh, the difference between the military and the civilian world is that <clears throat> you can't make people in the civilian world, you can't hire anybody, <clears throat> and then ask them to do push-ups and sit-ups and get up at 4 o'clock in the morning for you unless you're paying them a lot of money. Training goes directly to creating motivation. It goes to hardening bodies and making ears alert. It also goes to preparing people for things that they are not ready for and that they may not understand. There is no substitute for training. And yet, in every organization, almost every organization, without fail, there is no step in the process of human learning and motivation that is more skimped on, skipped past, hurried through, or basically ignored than the training and education of adults on how to perform a task, not to competency or mastery, that comes through repetition and drill, something that the military does quite well, but to a baseline of ability. One of the long and persistent knock-on effects of Frederick Winslow Taylor's uh, insights uh, into how human beings could be made into machines, how human labor could be widgetized, is that training people to perform to a standard higher than just a rudimentary level of performance has been ignored, often by business. Taylor wasn't interested in training, at least not beyond merely the training that allowed you to, again, become a human widget. And as a person who's in training, I read the chapters in With the Old Breed that covered how to make a Marine quite closely because science is underneath a lot of what the military, all of its branches, Army, Navy, Marines, Air Force, Merchant Marines, Coast Guard, uh, science undergirds a lot of what they do. And the science shows that training, including repetition and drill, helps create competency and mastery beyond mere raw ability. 
But of course, there is a disconnect between what science knows and what business chooses to do in the pursuit of profit. And the science of motivation, you know, the thing that comes out of training, is one of the most robustly researched areas in all of psychology. And we have clear, documented, falsifiable, and repeatable evidence of what motivates people to higher performance, particularly higher performance after training, and what helps them go beyond the mere baseline. And I quote from Daniel Pink, the New York Times bestselling author from his TED Talk in 2009 about performance. And you can find this talk online, by the way. You can just Google Dan Pink TED Talk. He said, and I quote, Dan Arelli, one of the greatest economists of our time, he and three colleagues did a study of some MIT students. They gave these MIT students a bunch of games, games that involved creativity and motor skills and concentration. And he offered them for performance three levels of reward. Small reward, medium reward, large reward. If you do really well, you get the large reward and on down. And what happened? Well, here's the shocking thing. As long as the task involved only mechanical skill, bonuses for performance worked as they would be expected to work. The higher the pay, the better the performance. Okay, that makes sense, right? But once the task called for even rudimentary cognitive skill, a larger reward led to poorer performance. Close quote. Rudimentary cognitive skill. Most of the work that we do today in our organizations and in our systems, in our processes and in our procedures, no longer involves people behaving in ways that are widgetized. Sure, you can process how to make a podcast or you can process how to process paperwork. You can write down checklists and have systems. You can create project management software and have people check off the box. You can monitor people through their cameras and through their microphones and make them sign in when they work from home. But most of the work that we have today requires requires training that involves the development of creativity, motor skills, and concentration. You know, the kind of training where you need repetition and drill, just like the Marines, in order to survive in the world that we are competing in as businesses. Training is the best antidote to failure on your team. And leaders believe in training. Matter of fact, leaders pay for training. Leaders support training. And leaders train whenever they have the opportunity, both of their followers, and they also ruthlessly train themselves. to E.B. Sledge, back to With the Old Breed. Chapter 4, Assault into Hell. We waited a seeming eternity for the signal to start toward the beach. The suspense was almost more than I could bear. Waiting is a major part of war, but I never experienced any more supremely agonizing suspense than the excruciating torture of those moments before we received the signal to begin the assault on Peleliu. I broke out in a cold sweat as the tension mounted with the intensity of the bombardment. By the way, the Americans um, were bombing Peleliu, a coral island um, in the in the Pacific. Um, with the uh, eight-inch salvos uh, dropping uh, a lot of ordnance on the island, hoping to rout out the Japanese before the Marines would go in and clear them out. Back to the book. I broke out in a cold sweat as the tension mounted with the intensity of the bombardment. My stomach was tied in knots. I had a lump in my throat and swallowed only with great difficulty. 
My knees nearly buckled, so I clung weakly to the side of the tractor. That's the um, that's the the boat that they're in. I felt nauseated and feared that my bladder would surely empty itself and reveal me to be the coward I was. But the men around me looked just about the way I felt. Finally, with a series of with a sense of fatalistic relief mixed with a flash of anger at the naval officer who was our wave commander, I saw him wave his flag toward the beach. Our driver revved the engine. The treads churned up the water, and we started in, the second wave ashore. We moved ahead, watching the frightful spectacle. Huge geysers of water rose around the Amtraks ahead of us as they approached the reef. The beach was now marked along its length by a continuous sheet of flame, backed by a thick wall of smoke. It seemed as though a huge volcano had erupted from the sea, and rather than heading for an island, we were being drawn into the vortex of a flaming abyss. For many, it was to be oblivion. The lieutenant braced himself and pulled out a half-pint whiskey bottle. This is it, boys, he yelled. Just like they do in the movies, it seemed unreal. He held out the bottle to me, but I refused. Just sniffing the cork under those conditions might have made me pass out. He took a long pull on the bottle, and a couple of men did the same. Suddenly, a large shell exploded with the terrific concussion, and a huge geyser rose up just to our right front. It barely missed us. The engine stalled. The front of the tractor lurched to the left and bumped hard against the rear of another Amtrak that was either stalled or hit. I never knew which. We sat stalled, floating in the water for some terrifying moments. We were sitting ducks for the enemy gunners. I looked forward through the hatch behind the driver. He was wrestling frantically with the control levers. Japanese shells were screaming into the area and exploding all around us. Sergeant Johnny Marmet leaned toward the driver and yelled something. Whatever it was, it seemed to calm the driver because he got the engine started. We moved forward again amid the geysers of exploding shells. Our bombardment began to lift off the beach and move inland. Our dive bombers also moved inland with their strafing and bombing. The Japanese increased the volume of their fire against the waves of Amtraks. Above the din, I could hear the ominous sound of shell fragments humming and growling through the air. Stand by! Someone yelled. I picked up my mortar ammo bag and slung it over my left shoulder, buckled my helmet chin strap, adjusted my carbine sling over my right shoulder, and tried to keep my balance. My heart pounded. Our Amtrak came out of the water and moved a few yards up the gently sloping sand. Hit the beach! yelled an NCO moments before the machine lurched to a stop. The men piled over the sides as fast as they could. I followed Snafu, that's one of his buddies, climbed up uh, and planted both feet firmly on the left side so as to leap as far away from it as possible. At that instant, a burst of machine gun fire with white-hot tracers snapped through the air at eye level, almost grazing my face. I pulled my head back like a turtle, lost my balance, and fell awkwardly forward down onto the sand in a tangle of ammo bag, pack, helmet, carbine, gas mask, cartridge belt, and flopping canteens. Get off the beach! Get off the beach! raced through my mind. Once I felt land under my feet, I wasn't as scared as I had been coming across the reef. My legs dug up the sand as I tried to rise. A firm hand gripped my shoulder. Oh God, I thought it's a nip who's come out of a pillbox. I couldn't reach my K-bar, fortunately, because as I got my face out of the sand and looked up, there was the worried face of a Marine bending over me. He thought the machine gun burst had hit me and he had crawled over to help. When he saw that I was unhurt, he spun me around and started crawling rapidly off the beach. I scuttled after him. Shells crashed all around, fragments tore and whirred, slapping on the sand and splashing into the water a few yards behind us. The Japanese were recovering from the shock of our pre-landing bombardment. Their machine guns and rifle fire got thicker, snapping viciously overhead at increasing volume. Our Amtrak spun around and headed back as I reached the edge of the beach and flattened on the deck. The world was a nightmare of flashes, violent explosions, and snapping bullets. Most of what I saw blurred. My mind was benumbed by the shock of it. I glanced back along the beach, across the beach, and saw a DUKW, rubber-tired amphibious truck, roll up on the sand at a near at a point near where we had just landed. The instant the DUKW stopped, it was engulfed in thick, dirty black smoke as a shell scored a direct hit on it. Bits of debris flew into the air. I watched that with an odd, detached fascination peculiar to men under fire as a flat metal panel about two feet square spun high into the air and then splashed into the shallow water like a big pancake. 
I didn't see any men get out of the DU KW. Sherman said about the Civil War and then he followed up in a letter to John Bell Hood and we'll read the memoirs of William Tecumseh Sherman and Ulysses S. Grant on the podcast this month War is cruelty General Sherman said in writing to General Bell Hood you cannot refine it it doesn't matter whether it's the seemingly bloodless war fought by drone in our time or the bloody wars of the near recent past. And by the way, if you go and research the Battle of Peleliu, uh, there was a lot of controversy back in the day about whether or not Peleliu as an island, a coral island, really needed to be taken. And inside of, with the old breed, you get a sense of the size of the island. Uh, they have great maps um, that actually show where the uh, Marines landed, how big their front line, how long their front lines were, where their regimental boundaries are, where there was a secondary counterattack, um, strong pressure, and a main counterattack. Um, there was also a note in here that states, since the end of World War II, historians and military analysts have argued inconclusively about the necessity of the Palalu Island campaign. Many believed after the battle, and still believe today, that the United States didn't need to fight it as a prerequisite to General MacArthur's return to the Philippines. Um, because of important events in Europe at the time, and a lack of immediate apparent benefits from the seizure of Peleliu, the battle remains one of the lesser known or understood of the Pacific War. Nonetheless, for many, it ranks as the roughest fight the Marines had in World War II. Peleliu was also an important reminder of the Marines' war in the Pacific because of the changes in Japanese tactics encountered there. The Japanese abandoned their conventional all-out effort at defending the beach in favor of a complex defense based on a complex defense based upon mutually supporting fortified positions in caves and pillboxes extending deeply into the interior of the island, particularly in the ridges of Umorgobrogol. I can't really say that word, but Umorgobrogol. Butchered it again. <laughs> Mountain. Aided by the incredibly rough terrain, the new Japanese tactics proved so successful that the 1st Marine Division suffered more than twice as many casualties on Peleliu as the 2nd Marine Division had, had on Tarawa. Tarawa. Proportionately, United States casualties on Peleliu closely approximated those suffered later on Iwo Jima, where the Japanese again employed an intricate defense in-depth, conserved forces, and fought a battle of attrition. On an even greater scale, the skillful, tenacious defense of the southern portion of Okinawa uses, used the same sophisticated, in-depth defensive system first tested by the Japanese on Peleliu. That's directly from With the Old Breed. Um, the way the book is written, um, you know, you have some parts that are in italics that basically give an explanation of what is going on in the main, uh, the main drag, the main force of the chapter. And so that was in Chapter uh, 3 on to Peleliu, that discussion. But it doesn't negate anything that Sherman pointed out. And Sherman was a direct communicator, and Sherman got it. War is cruelty. And we're about to see that with the killing and the dying on that island of Peleliu in a battle that may or may not have been consequential, where 3,400 Marines lost their lives. That's right, 3,400. More, more Marines lost 
than in the entire first swath of the Iraq War over the course of eight years. 3,400 died in a day. What can leaders take from this, other than the numbers and the horror of war and the commitment to never fight a war again? Well, well, when leaders read memoirs about warfare, about man's inhumanity to man, the first thing that leaps out at them usually is the level of depravity, fear, filth, and cruelty that is required in order to make sure that a war is, um, a war is actually won, right? This causes a split, however. This causes a dichotomy in our modern mindsets, accustomed as we are to comfort, plenty of resources, and very little physical pain, although we do have quite a bit of mental health problems and we do have a quite a bit of anxiety and depression in our postmodern existential angst, what the comedian Mark Barron might call thinky pain. We got a lot of that. This lack of personal sacrifice, scaled up to the legislative and nation-state level in a hierarchy, leads our political leaders, feckless or useful as they may be based on their temperament and actual active practice, to making decisions about the execution of a conflict, a war, that tend to have real human consequences that can seem to be too hard to accept in the comfortable present. But these sacrifices, the ability to make these decisions, was brought to us by the even worse sacrifices and of, of people in a much more unsure and physically uncomfortable past. By the way, you get that in With the Old Breed. It's scattered with pictures, and uh, the pictures show boys, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, boys that you could see walking up and down the street right now, skinny boys, but muscular, strong, but with something different behind the eyes than all the boys you may now see in videos on YouTube or on TikTok. I want to close with something Sherman pointed out in writing to John Bell Hood, Confederate commander during the American Civil War. You cannot qualify war in harsher terms than I will. War is cruelty and you cannot refine it. And those who brought war into our country deserve all the curses and maledictions a people can pour out. I know I had no hand in making this war, and I know I will not. I know I will make more sacrifices today than any of you to secure peace. But you cannot have peace and a division of our country. If the United States submits to a division now, it will not stop, but will go on until we reap the fate of Mexico, which is eternal war. The United States does and must assert its authority wherever it once had power, for if it relaxes one bit to pressure, it is gone, and I believe that such is the national feeling. Close quote. For leaders in non-warfare situations, take heed to the words of Sherman and the experiences of men like E.B. Sledge. Use caution in your language. Avoid the use of the language of cruelty, depravity, fear, and filth. Because, well, you have to understand and recognize, not necessarily that modern followers in these modern times are quote-unquote softer than folks were even in E.B. Sledge's day, but because you realize that language has power, Life and death exists in the power of the tongue and that the reality you want to show up by your words had better be the reality that you can live with the consequences of in the material world. You want cruelty, depravity, fear, and filth? Then go ahead. Use the language of warfare to motivate your followers. But if you want growth and culture, if you want peace and prosperity, well, choose your language just like you would choose your weapon in a war carefully.
back to the book, back to With the Old Breed by E.B. Sledge. Um, we're not reading all of the book. Uh, we never do. Uh, that's not what we do here on this podcast. Instead, we are reading selections from the book. Um, and the book does cover Peleliu in the first six chapters, and then it covers Okinawa, uh, the final triumph, in the last, um, the last eight chapters. Um, and then there's an honor roll. Uh, the edition we have is written, or has an introduction written by a gentleman um, in military history uh, who I respect quite mightily, uh, Victor Davis Hansen. And uh, he is a military historian of some, um, some note, um, studied everything from the Peloponnesian Wars all the way up to the wars in Iraq. Um, because, quite frankly, as he says, war does does show all of the humanity and inhumanity that human beings can muster to a very specific point um he um he wrote the the introduction to to this memoir and um it's worthwhile to pick up by the way with the old breed also serves as the basis for the hbo series the pacific um, which I recently just picked up, interestingly enough, at Half Price Books um, for the low, low price of 13 bucks. I don't know if all of those DVDs are scratched or not, but we're going to find out. I did not watch it ahead of recording this podcast today. Didn't want it to taint my perception. I just wanted to have the book. So there's several things, several resources out there that you can get that can act as a supplement to this book. But let's return to the book. Let's return to Peleliu. Let's return to our assault into hell. And I quote from With the Old Breed, To be shelled by massed artillery and mortars is absolutely terrifying, but to be shelled in the open is terror compounded beyond the belief of anyone who hasn't experienced it. The attack across Peleliu's airfield was the worst combat experience I had during the entire war. It's surpassed by the intensity of the blast and the shock of the burning, bursting shells, all the subsequent horrifying ordeals on Peleliu and Okinawa. The heat was incredibly intense. The temperature that day reached 105 degrees in the shade. We were not in the shade and would soar to 115 degrees on subsequent days. Corman tagged numerous Marines with heat prostration as being too weak to continue. By the way, Corman are the EMTs of the Marines. Um, we evacuated them. My boondockers were so full of sweat that my feet felt squishy when I walked. Lying on my back, I held up first one foot and then the other. Water literally poured out of each shoe. A sledgehammer chuckled a man sprawled next to me. You've been walking on water. Maybe that's why he didn't get hit coming across that airfield, laughed another. I tried to grin and was glad the inevitable wisecracks had started up again. Because of the shape of the airfield, 3-5 was pinched out of line by 2-5 on our left and 3-7 on our right after our crossing. We swung eastward and Company K tied with 3-7, which was attacking in the swampy areas on the east side of the airfield. As he picked up our gear, a veteran remarked to me with a jerk of his head toward the airfield where the shelling continued. That was rough duty. Hate to do, have to do that every day. We moved through the swamps amid sniper fire and dug in for the night with our backs to the sea. I positioned my mortar in a meager gun pit on a slight rise of ground about 15 feet from a sheer rock bluff that dropped about 10 feet to the ocean. The jungle growth was extremely thick, but we had a clear hole in the jungle canopy above the gun pit through which we could fire the mortar without having shells hit the foliage and explode. Most of the men in the company were out of sight through the thick mangroves. Still short of water, everyone was weakened by the heat and the exertions of the day. I had used my water as sparingly as possible and had to eat 12 salt tablets that day. We kept close count of these tablets. They caused retching if we took more than necessary. The enemy infiltration that followed was a nightmare. Illumination fired above the airfield the previous night, D-Day, had discouraged infiltration in my sector, but others had experienced plenty of the hellish sort of thing we now faced and would suffer every night for the remainder of our time on Peleliu. The Japanese were noted for their infiltration tactics. On Peleliu, they refined them and practiced them with a level of intensity not, not seen in the past. After we had dug in late, late that afternoon, we followed a procedure used nearly every night. 
Using directions from our observer, we registered in mortar by firing a couple of HE shells into a defilade or some similar avenue of approach in front of the company, not covered by our machine gun or rifle fire where the enemy might advance. We then set up alternate aiming stakes to mark other terrain features on which we could fire. Everyone light, lighted up a smoke, and the password for the night was whispered along a line, passed from foxhole to foxhole. The password would always contain the letter L, which the Japanese had difficulty pronouncing the way an American would. The Japanese soon began trying to infiltrate all over the company front and along the shore to our rear. We heard sporadic bursts of small arms fire and a bang of grenades. Our fire discipline had to be strict in such situations so as not to mistakenly shoot a fellow Marine. The loose accusation uh, was often made during the war that Americans were quote-unquote trigger-happy at night and shoot on shot at anything that moved. This accusation was often correct when referring to rear area or inexperienced troops, but in the rifle companies, it was also accepted as gospel that anybody who moved out of his hole at night without first informing the men around him and who didn't reply immediately with the password upon being challenged could expect to get shot. Suddenly, movement in the dried vegetation toward the front of the gun pit got my attention. I turned cautiously around and waited, holding Snafu's cocked forty-five automatic pistol at the ready. The rustling movements drew closer. My heart pounded. It was definitely not one of Pelu's numerous land crabs that scuttled over the ground at night. Every night, someone was slowly crawling toward the gun pit, then silence. More noise than silence. Rustling noises, then silence. A typical pattern. It must be a Japanese trying to slip in as close as possible, stopping frequently to prevent detection, I thought. He probably had seen the muzzle flash when I fired the mortar. He would throw a grenade at any moment or jump me with his bayonet. I couldn't see a thing in the pale light and inky blackness of the shadows. Crouching low so as to see better any silhouette against the sky above me, I flipped off the thumb safety on the big pistol. A helmeted figure loomed up against the night sky in front of the gun pit. I couldn't tell from the silhouette whether the helmet was U.S. or Japanese. Aiming the automatic at the center of the head, I pressed the grip safety as I also squeezed the trigger slightly to take up the slack. The thought raced through my mind that he was too close to use his grenade, so he would probably use a bayonet or knife on me. My hand was steady even though I was scared. It was he or I. What's the password? I said in a low voice. No answer. Password. I demanded as my, figure, my finger tightened on the trigger. The big pistol would fire and buck with recoil in a moment, but to hurry and jerk the trigger would mean a miss for sure. Then, then he'd be on me. Sledgehammer, stammered the figure. I eased up on the trigger. It's Dilly Jay, Jay Dilly, you got any water? Jay, why didn't you give the password? I nearly shot you, I gasped. He saw the pistol and moaned, Oh, Jesus, as he realized what had nearly happened. I thought you knew it was me, he said weakly. Jay was one of my closest friends. He was a Gloucester veteran and knew better than to prowl around the way he had just done. If my finger had applied the last bit of pressure to that trigger, Jay would have died instantly. It would have been his own fault, but that wouldn't have mattered to me. My life would have been ruined if I had killed him, even under those circumstances. My right hand trembled violently as I lowered the big automatic. I had to flip on the thumb safety with my left hand. My right thumb was too weak. I felt nauseated and weak and wanted to cry. Jay crept over and sat on the edge of the gun pit. I'm sorry, Sledgehammer. I thought you knew it was me, he said. After handing him a canteen, I shuddered violently and thanked God that Jay was still alive. Just how in the hell could I tell it was you in the dark with nips all over the place, I snarled. Then... I reamed out one of the best friends I ever had.
shooting your own man. In military parlance, this is called a blue on blue. Uh, in some cases, it's also called in the civilian world a friendly fire incident. Training, discipline, competence, maturity, all of these things, and yes, I did throw maturity in there, all of these things, all these factors, temperament even as well, go into not killing your own man. The big one there, though, is patience. Um, patience to wait and see. Patience to wait until the very last moment to take a step or make a decision. Patience to know which decision to make and to prioritize things almost immediately. In past times, we used to demand this sort of patience, this sort of set of skills from people at a much younger age than we demand of them now in our postmodern era. One of the things that leaders have to pay attention to is how do we cultivate those skills so that in the civilian world, we're not stepping on each other's toes when we're attempting to commit to a process so that there is a level of accountability that is very, very high. And of course, so that we feel responsibility to other members of our team to not destroy themselves or their efforts. And yet... We did an episode about Julius Caesar um, a little while ago, and we were recently interviewed. I was recently interviewed on, on the Sense and Signal podcast and brought this up when I was talking with Dan and Joda. Um, Dan brought up this uh, this idea that um, political assassination occurs in the workplace all the time. And yeah, yeah, political assassination just like is exemplified, just like what is exemplified in Julius Caesar occurs all the time. Um, but even worse is assassination by your own people. A blue on blue. People replicating work, um, duplicating processes, not paying attention to what is happening, the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing, chaos reigning all over the place. These are the types of things that leaders seek to avoid through training, through repetition, through drill, through understanding the nature of a thing through allowing people the autonomy and the freedom to adapt in an environment that may seem chaotic in the moment, but can sometimes calm down to almost nothing. Now, we don't want to draw too much, right? Because warfare is warfare, and going to work is not warfare. Going to work is going to work. However, there are large lessons that we can draw from that. So, contextualize the war memoir. Contextualize warfare itself. If you've never been in a war or you've never served on the front lines and you've never worked with or spoken with or lived next door to or had someone in your family who has heard the whiz of a bullet past their ears or above their heads, you may not understand why we are talking about this this month. But this month we are talking about warfare and we are reading war memoirs and so what are you to draw from that if you've never been in the experience, if you've never done the thing itself? Well, one of the biggest things that you can draw from warfare is the need to contextualize the answer. It doesn't really matter what the question is, by the way. It could be any question. How do we make these purchase orders this month? Or how do we go out and get new business? Or, you know, how do we move around our human resources in the best possible way? You have to contextualize the answer to that question. And then use that context and be careful inside of that context with your language. Careful how you frame solutions to problems. Careful how you frame motivation for others. It's training not only for yourself, but also for the people around you on your team. This is incredibly important. This will lead to creativity, autonomy, and magic moving forward. And it will lead to the elimination of the civilian or the workplace versions of blue on blues. 
And when the enemy does try to infiltrate, and the enemy always gets a vote, when the enemy does try to infiltrate, you'll be ready. Your team will be ready. They'll be ready to deal with the competitors or the market or the customers or the regulators. They'll be ready. And they won't jump the gun or pull the trigger too soon. So what are we to take from these three sections of With the Old Breed by E.B. Sledge? What are we to take from, from this book today on the podcast? How can we apply this to our real lives? How can we apply the experiences of a Marine um, in, a, in a battle that probably didn't need to be fought, in a war that definitely did need to be fought, on an island you've probably never heard of? What are the lessons we can take and apply in our world in 2022? A world geopolitically that, according to many smart people, seems poised on the cusp of nuclear warfare. A world where shortages and inflation um, are creating animosity and violence. A world where wars and rumors of wars are beginning up again after a long period of a seeming escape from history and peace. What can leaders take from this if they've never served in a war and if they want to be judicious in their language and not use the language of warfare in order to motivate people but instead want to pick other language? What can they learn from the peak pinnacle event in man's inhumanity to man that somehow we can't get rid of because it's cruelty, yes, but it's cruelty in the human heart. What are we to learn as leaders from With the Old Breed? What are we to take from this book? Well, I think the biggest lesson that we can take from today, other than maybe the language lesson, the biggest lesson we can take from, from the reading today is that literature and war memoirs are literature. Uh, literature crosses the gap between the experience of the thing and the thing itself. As Ward just wrote in the introduction to the other war memoir that we're going to read later on this month in the podcast and talk about, um, there is the thing, and then there is the, there's the experience of the thing, and then there's the actual thing itself. And genuine literature written by an individual who was in the thing, who actually understands how to navigate and and, and uh, articulate that experience, well, that's great literature. And that's literature worth reading. And that's better and more valuable to you than reading and trying to understand yet another business book. But at the same time, leaders have to contextualize that literature. They have to put it in its appropriate box, its appropriate spot in the hierarchy of information, of experience, and of emotional entanglement in their minds, not only for themselves, but also for their employees. So for instance, do you want to take your employees to go do war game training if you're all just sitting around in an office moving code around? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Either way, leaders believe in training. And that's the third point. Um, training is more than just a time suck. It, it is that, don't get me wrong. It does take away time from your production. Uh, yes, the person who's sitting in the office or sitting in a cubicle or sitting in a, another place in a truck who instead moves from that cubicle or from that office or from that truck to another place and 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 learns something at the cost per head to you yeah that's that's somebody who's not producing something for sure but the long-term return the long-term roi we like to talk about that a lot in business the long-term roi on training is at least two to five times what you actually spend on it because guess what what training does if properly executed and properly implemented and properly followed up on 
and we could talk about all those areas as well. What training does is it creates opportunities for repetition and drill and play and creativity that cannot happen inside of the box of you got to get this piece of paperwork out the door. Or we got to get this code out the door. Or we got to get this product out the door. Training eliminates the, the hectic hassle of the we gotta, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta. And allows people's minds and hearts to be placed in a different spot so they can learn different things. Obviously, I believe in the value of training. I've built a training and development company that's also a publishing company. But training also helps cross the gap in the same way that literature does. So training sometimes can be the experience of the thing. But sometimes it can also be the thing itself. Finally, leaders take the initiative. And that's what you note in uh, with the old breed. The Marines made decisions. Um, making a decision is better than making no decision. And very often, leadership is punished for making no decision. Uh, or, or not, sorry, making no decision. Making a bad decision, right? So in order to avoid making a bad decision, leaders would prefer to just sort of stand pat and just wait for circumstances to get better. But when the enemy is seeking to infiltrate your, your company or your organization or your culture, when your competitors are seeking to push you out of the market, when your own customers can sometimes be your worst <laughs> enemies, um, what are you going to do? Are you going to make no decision? Are you merely going to stay on the beach while the shells are falling down all around you? Or are you going to decide to get up, put one foot in front of the other, and move forward? Leaders make decisions they take the initiative and they move the ball forward just like the marines did at peleliu and just like other troops have done throughout history remember i said that leaders are careful with their language and i've tried to be careful on this podcast and judicious in using my analogies and my metaphors because i want to role model that behavior for you on the podcast so think about your words Think about your people and think about the context that all of those sit in as we here on the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast explore the world of the war memoir this month. And well, for right now, that's it for me.
Listen and subscribe to the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast on all the major podcast players that you listen to podcasts on, including iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and even Spotify. And please leave a five-star review if you like the show. We need those reviews to grow, and it's the easiest way to make sure that this show gets into the ears of the leaders who need to hear it. And of course, tell all your friends. If you want to get started on the leadership path, HSCT Publishing's products and services can help your team do that. Check out our training webinars, coaching services, and more at leadershiptoolbox.us. We also have a video-based subscription service, that's software as a service, that can help your team become better at the individual level. 60 modules on over 100 hours of video and written content for you at leadingkeys.com. That's leadingkeys.com. We've also got books that will help you and your team grow. Pick up a copy today of My Boss Doesn't Care, 100 Essays on Disrupting Your Workplace by Disrupting Your Boss, and subscribe to the Little Red Podcast I launched earlier this year with the same name as that Little Red Book. My most recent book is 12 Rules for Leaders, The Foundation of Intentional Leadership. Co-written with contributions from Bradley Madigan, this is the book for right now that was written for leaders right now. Pick up a copy by heading over to 12rulesleadersbook.com backslash now. That's 12rulesleadersbook.com backslash now. You pay for shipping, and you'll get a copy of my second book as well. Finally, you can get all these books in paperback, hardcover, or as ebooks on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and any other place online you order books. Finally, HSCT Publishing is on YouTube. Like and subscribe to the video version of the Leadership Lessons for the Great Books podcast on the HSCT Publishing channel on YouTube. Just search for HSCT Publishing and hit the subscribe button. You'll get our weekly video updates, which is the video version of this podcast. And, of course, you're going to want to subscribe to my other podcast. That's right, I do do more than one. The Hayson Sorrells Presents Audio Experience, where I talk more casually with a broader range of people about all matters that matter in the world today, from arts all the way to analytics. All right, that's it for me.